0: Facing the Future of International Arbitration, a CMS series exploring the evolving challenges and innovations in
1: international arbitration.
2: Welcome to a new series of podcasts by CMS on uh, Facing the Future in International Arbitration. We'll be running a series of short podcasts of 20-25 minutes by members of our CMS International Arbitration Group. Uh, uh, And each one will have speakers from different jurisdictions. And today I'm very pleased to uh, welcome Jess Foley, who is a senior associate in London, who's worked on both commercial and investment arbitrations, and also has uh, uh, experience of the institution, having spent some time on secondment with the LCIA. And joining Jess is Bart Adrian de Reuter of our uh, Amsterdam office. He's very experienced in both commercial litigation and international arbitration and, of course, ICC arbitrations. And why do I mention ICC arbitrations? Well, that's because today's topic is to discuss the changes to the ICC rules. Now, this isn't a complete revision of the ICC rules. These are really some quite minor amendments that have been made to update certain elements of practice. And the ICC have uh, promoted these on the basis of, among other things, efficiency, flexibility and transparency. So we thought, well, let's t- take those topics as a way to introduce Uh, the changes, uh, starting with efficiency, but can you outline the key changes that have been made by the ICC in relation to efficiency? Yes, thank you, Guy. To my opinion, there are two
0: uh, important amendments uh, relating to efficiency. The the first relates to the conduct of hearings, and the second relates to transmission of documents on hearings, Article 26.1, of the 2021 rules now expressly provides that the arbitral tribunal may decide after consulting the parties and on the basis of the relevant facts and circumstances of the case that any hearing will be conducted by physical attendance or, and that's important, remotely by video conference, telephone or other appropriate means of communication. That clearly gives room, let's say, for new technologies. To my opinion, this change uh, uh, underlines uh, the shift toward the increased use of technology, in particular in relation to virtual or remote hearings. This is also a presumption in favor of electronic copies of pleadings and communications, rather than hard copies, Uh, you know, the big piles of paper, hundreds or thousands of papers. That's not uh, visible anymore today the two thousand and twenty one uh, rules now address the rapid shift toward virtual hearings in arbitration which has taken place during two thousand and twenty and although a gradual move away from um, in person hearings was already afoot, um, yeah the pace of change has been dramatically hastened by the covid nineteen uh, pandemic and yeah while the ic responded quite fast uh, to the pandemic and issued its guidance note on uh, possible Measures r- related to the COVID 19 pandemic in uh, in April of the last year. There remained aspects of the 2017 rules which arguably uh, required hearings to be held in person. And yeah, um, that that's why this amendment this was uh, necessary, I think. And on the change regarding transmission of documents, Article 3.1 of the 2021 rules provides for pleadings and written communications to be sent to each party arbitrator and the ICC Secretariat, with all communication from the tribunal to the parties also sent in copy to the Secretariat. So this is also an important change for the electronic sending of documents.
2: Jess, you've obviously, and I should say thanks Bart, Jess, you've seen this from the perspective of both council and actually within an institution. What's your view?
1: Hi, thanks guys. So I'm very pleased to see the move towards electronic communications. And away from all of that unnecessary paperwork um, that we see both, obviously, among council and uh, within the institutions as well. And obviously, if people do still want to print out the odd document or two, that's, that's definitely up to them. But I think we're now definitely, as Bart says, living in a world where reading and storing and marking up documents on screen is just the default way to be working. And so it's not only just that soft copies are practical and necessary now that we're working from home because of the pandemic, but Um, working in this way, I think, is also essential from an environmental perspective. And the same goes for virtual hearings, of course. And I'm sure so many of our um, listeners will be aware of the Green Pledge and the campaign for greener arbitration, both of which have been spearheaded by Lucy Greenwood. And one of the key things I've taken away from both of those initiatives is that this is not just about saving paper. It's about the carbon emissions that we're generating with each arbitration with the planes and the taxis that we're taking to hearings and the, the couriers we use to ship documents around and even the coffee cups that we're picking up on the way to a hearing. So it, it really all, it all adds up. So I think it's just important to bear that point in mind. I mean, it's great to see the ICC and other institutions doing away with paper and moving towards virtual hearings, but perhaps that's just a first step towards a much bigger solution that's needed.
2: Thanks, Jess. Um, and let's just talk a bit more about that whole issue of um, transmission of documents. We all remember the time when we had to produce multiple copies of the same material and send it into the institution so they could send it on to all of the respondents. Um, so this potentially does away waif with that. But any risks arising from that? I appreciate most jurisdictions are probably quite comfortable dealing predominantly with electronic jurisdictions, but is that the case everywhere?
1: Well, I can't claim to be an expert in other jurisdictions, Uh, but yeah, as you say, I think it's pretty important to be mindful that there will be different practices in other jurisdictions. So I can see there being perhaps a potential risk in terms of a party arguing that they didn't receive proper notice of an arbitration or of a particular development in an arbitration. So, for example, if your contract contains your, that contains your arbitration agreement includes a notices provision, which provides for uh, service of documents in person or by post, then you could potentially have an issue there. But of course, one simple way of avoiding that is for commercial parties and our clients now to be checking their notices provisions, which may well be boilerplate, um, when they're drafting their agreements, check them now to ensure they would actually be workable in the event of a dispute.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, that the communication should be secured uh, so that uh, the privacy is, uh, yeah, required for for this transaction.
2: A, a fair point if we're using email predominantly and yeah. I guess that's something that the tribunal will probably pick up with the parties at the beginning uh, maybe at po1 I mean one point is worth mentioning I guess is also that if if a claimant was concerned that a respondent might take issue with the method of service or maybe there is a provision within the agreement that's the subject of arbitration it's still an option for the claimant I think under article 4 to um actually still ask the um secretariat to transmit multiple copies and hard copies to the respondents so that is still a route available and perhaps just a point for claimants to take away so I do have a question for both of you on the other topic of virtual hearings um so this has been talked about a great deal in 2020 but I think what people really want to know is what do we really think about it so what's your view if you were arbitrator or counsel what would be your preference maybe Bart you go first um Now, due to the Covid-19
0: restrictions, um, last year we had elaborate experience in uh, virtual hearings and hybrid hearings at the the Dutch courts and international courts I worked in. And my personal experience is that for the fact finding and the confrontation discussion uh, with witnesses and things like that, uh, in that respect, it has my strong preference to be in the same room for for the optimal fact finding and uh, other kinds of discussions such as formal legal argumentation can be perfectly done via virtual hearing. There's no necessity to be in the same room for that. I don't know how Jess thinks about that.
1: So I probably take a similar view actually. I'm I'm going to be one of those um, typical annoying lawyers and say, I think it really depends. Um, And that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, procedural hearings, where they only take half a day or a day, I I really increasingly don't see the need for those to be in person anymore. I think a huge amount of time and cost could probably be saved by having all of those virtually. But then substantive final hearings, that's kind of a different question. I feel like it does leave um, advocacy lacking in some way. You know if i'm if I'm looking at the camera, then you feel I'm looking at you, but at my end, i have actually taken my eyes off you and I'm just staring at the outside of my my computer. So there is something lacking there, which is which would be a shame to lose. And as Bart says, cross-examination of witnesses uh, would be impacted. So I hope that we don't go fully virtual. Um, but I think there is a middle ground to be found.
2: Thanks, Jess. Uh, I think that's understandable views. Um I'm interested, actually, as to whether we might get to a, 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 an environment where cross-examination of witnesses could happen remotely. And indeed, of course, some witnesses do give evidence um, remotely. They were doing so well before the pandemic. But perhaps where the technology is much better so that we can see them from multiple angles um, and that there are other measures in place so that we get a much better sense of their reaction. There's obviously the the question of psychology and, so- and science around in responses other than words and and how much that matters as well. But that's been beyond today's podcast. Um, let's move on to the next issue of flexibility then. Um, Jess, uh, these are some thorny issues in, uh, or there are some thorny issues in arbitration relating to things like uh, multi-party disputes or where you've got multiple arbitrations dealing with the same issue. So what have the ICC done to address these?
1: So the ICC has made some changes relating to the joinder and consolidation provisions. So firstly, in relation to joinder, there's a new paragraph entirely in Article 7, which provides that the tribunal has the power to allow a third party to be joined even after the appointment of an arbitrator, provided that the parties, including the third party, agree to that third party being joined. So I think this amendment fixes a little bit of inflexibility that was in the article previously. Um, But I don't think we're going to see a huge amount of um, change in practice as a result of this but it is still a useful provision because it allows parties to be added for pretty non controversial purposes such as you know when you have a multiple parties to a dispute arising out of one transaction and all you want to do is bring in one of those additional parties and then secondly in relation to consolidation the ICC has made some changes to article 10 and the amendments actually look pretty minor on the page and they don't hugely change the substance of the provision But what the ICC has done is to broaden the circumstances in which arbitrations can be consolidated. So now we have, um, as we did previously, we still have three circumstances in which consolidation can be ordered. And they are one where the parties have agreed to consolidation, which is straightforward enough two, where the claims are made under the same arbitration agreement or agreements. And now three, where the claims are not made under the same arbitration agreement, but the arbitration still meet three criteria. And those are, they're between the same parties, the disputes arise in connection with the same legal relationship and the ICC court finds the agreements to be compatible. So those are the the key changes.
2: Thanks very much, Jess. Bart, do you have anything to comment? Um, Yeah.
0: To my opinion, uh, both these changes, uh, Jess just mentioned, uh, are very helpful uh, in allowing more flexibility. Uh, they v- reflect, to, m- to my opinion, the shift in international practice to provide more practical solutions to parties involved in complex projects or transactions. And empowering uh, a tribunal to join a third party to proceedings provides a simple procedural solution to what may be needed for certainty in proceedings, and that's very important to me. And it's not always the case that uh joinder of a party is a controversial step. Uh, sometimes people uh, and parties agree, and this amendment facilitates uh, sh- such a joinder where all parties agree. And yeah, there are, on the other hand, many drivers and strategic reasons, of course, uh, for the leg- legitimate um, separation of disputes into separate Arbitral proceedings between the same or connected parties, for example, in uh, different legal territories uh, with uh, different applicable law. Um, but yeah, inflexible arbitrational rules should not be uh, the bottleneck here uh, for inefficient uh, arbitral uh, proceedings. So, uh, facilitating efficient joinder or consolidation with appropriate safeguards, to my opinion, is an important element of modern arbitral practice.
2: Thanks, Bart, and I agree with that. So I think on the joinder, it sounds like we're all agreed that's a sensible addition for the ICC rules just to add a little bit of flexibility in particular for the tribunal. It's not going to create a solution for any party to bring in a, a completely new um, uh, uh, third party in those arbitrations against the will of other parties. So it really is only a practical measure, but I do want to pick up on one point, which is around consolidation. Now, actually my question isn't really about what was new in the rules, but because there's a a change of emphasis a little bit around the fact that you may have already had a consolidation of, uh, of of disputes in a single arbitration because you could have one arbitration proceeding with a number of arbitration agreements already but that then if you bring in a new dispute not under those agreements you could still add that in without the consent of the parties and one of the points jess that you made is that yes the icc have to apply a certain test but one of them is that the dispute has to arise out of the same legal relationship and I just query, you know that presumably isn't under the same agreement, because that will have already been that's already been addressed and excluded. So is there an area where there is now a scope for dispute as to how the ICC might apply that?
1: So I think potentially, yes, um, so I think what the ICC is trying to cater for with the language in connection with the same legal relationship is a situation where you have one overarching transaction, and then within that there are a number of different agreements that each deal with specific parts of that transaction. So for example, on the sale of a company, you might have the sale and purchase agreement between the seller and the purchaser, but then those same parties may also both be party to a shareholders agreement, for example. And so in a situation where, as you say, you've got several potentially different arbitrations commenced under different agreements, assuming that those arbitration clauses are compatible, it might be efficient to consolidate those arbitrations. Um, but that said, I think the kind of the context is going to be key. The ICC will want to look at each application for consolidation on a case by-case basis to ensure the requirements are actually met. Um, and as, as Bart referred to earlier, there are definitely some situations where it may not be more efficient, it, it may not be uh, fair or appropriate for um, arbitrations to be consolidated, but then they should instead proceed separately.
2: Uh, Yep, thanks, Jess. And I am sure we're going to hear about any contested uh, decisions to consolidate in due course. Shall we move on to the third topic of transparency then? Um, And maybe I'll introduce this one a little bit. So 20 years ago, transparency wasn't really a word that you heard in the context of international arbitration, because I think back then, as well as enforceability, the other key word was confidentiality, and uh, and that was you know very much a selling point of, for international arbitration, being that commercial parties could have their disputes resolved behind closed doors. But what we're now hearing, of course, is that this concept of transparency is coming in. The ICC has talked about it as a, a factor behind some of the changes to the rules. Um, And I'll just introduce these four areas because it goes a little bit beyond just the amendments. So uh, what the amendments have introduced is uh, disclosures in arbitration where, for example, a party is now required to disclose the presence of a third party funder with an interest in the outcome of the case. Um, We also have had some updates where um, the ICC have introduced a bit more transparency in the workings and decision making of the ICC. So some reasons can now be given, say, in exceptional circumstances. But there was more already, and this is indicative of maybe a move towards uh, transparency and arbitration. So in January 2019, of course, the ICC uh, indicated more broadly that they're going to start a practice of routinely publishing awards, uh, uh, having notified the parties that do so and then do it and then publish it within two years after that. And then obviously, we already have the concept that um, arbitrators are identified when appointed in ICC arbitration. So you can go onto the ICC website and actually see who's been appointed. So a lot more transparency uh, in that process. So let's take a slightly different approach here. Um, uh, On this occasion, I've invited Jess to take a position in favor of lots of transparency in arbitration, and Bard is going to take uh, a position in the opposite direction. I should say the the views that they're about to express are not necessarily the views of CMS, but we thought it would be interesting for the purposes of debate. So Jess, please make the case for transparency.
1: Thanks guys. So yes, I'll just make two quick comments on the amendments before getting into the publication of the awards where we can have a bit of a debate. So I think it's good to see the rule on transparency around third party funding. It's not hugely surprising though, to be honest, I think third party funding is just a feature of modern arbitration now and litigation for that matter. And the rule will help avoid actual or perceived conflicts of interest, such as where an advisor is, an arbitrator, excuse me, is probably, is possibly sitting on an advisory committee And avoiding those conflicts uh, will help ensure the enforceability of any eventual award. As for the ICC giving reasons for certain decisions upon the request of a party, I think it'll be interesting to see how often that's actually used and whether the court relies on the exceptional circumstances carve out. And I also kind of wonder how useful it's going to be for parties. As far as I'm aware, if a party isn't actually happy with the reasons given, they can't challenge or appeal that decision. But nevertheless I think it's a good step forward in terms of transparency to be able to get the ICC's reasons and now for the publication of awards uh, I personally hope we're going to start seeing awards being published now that it's two years after those uh, awards uh, were issued uh, in January 2019 and I noticed that the ICC's updated practice note has clarified that the names of the parties and the arbitrators will be included in the awards that are published although the parties can of course request total or partial anonymization, if they like, or they can object to publication altogether. So I think there's a really strong argument for transparency in relation to awards and naming arbitrators, which, as Guy said, we've actually had for a few years now. I think personally, it's concerning that as arbitration becomes more popular, we're increasingly losing the opportunity in common law countries, at least, for the law to develop through court made case law there are actually a huge number of cases now being decided behind closed doors. And those cases are ones that could otherwise potentially really contribute to modernising the law and allowing it to develop to address those fiddly or controversial points. So I I do wonder whether parties need to consider whether their desire for confidentiality is so important that their content for the development of the law to actually be kind of stifled in this way. So their case, for example, could benefit from their tribunal being aware of a previous arbitration award that deals with the same legal issues and a similar fact pattern. So for example, uh, ICSID investment treaty awards are published, and although there's no concept of precedent as such, parties do include that jurisprudence in their submissions and tribunals do have regard to it. So I wonder whether we can have the same thing in commercial arbitration.
2: But can I just intervene there? Because I think there's an important difference in investment arbitration. Obviously, there is, I think, a case to be made that there's a public interest because it involves inevitably a state and and questions around what the state has done. So I think I can see the case for transparency there. But is it necessarily the case to say that the same should apply in commercial matters between commercial parties?
1: I would argue yes, there is still a public interest there. I think, for example, you know, public companies are involved in commercial arbitration and they are accountable to their shareholders who are the public and even private companies as well. You they are often, you know, they may be providing services to hundreds or thousands, if not millions of people. And I think those people, the public, do have a right to know how businesses are conducting themselves. And it's it's all part of a it's consistent with this general move towards. Accountability of businesses in a number of areas, like you know diversity and um, the environment and ethical working practices, things like that. Uh, so, so yes, I'd say that there is still a public interest, and the same can apply to commercial and investment arbitration in terms of transparency.
2: Okay, Jess. Well, uh, Bart, Jess has made the case powerfully for uh, uh, transparency. I could even see you nodding on occasion as well. But um, make the case the other way. Make the case that we shouldn't have transparency. We should have much more confidentiality.
0: Thanks, you guys. Uh, Yeah, it's very simple. Uh, My opinion is that confidentiality is one of the main drivers to choose for arbitration. So I have true problems with transparency, which undermines the confidentiality one way or the other and especially in commercial litigation you choose for yeah for confidential arbitration and then you should publish some kind of awards in in there and for case law perspective yeah i i don't understand the added, added value of that
2: Yeah, and I think there's a point there around the perception is if people feel like they're choosing a confidential process, then actually do they feel like they want to wrap over the entire process? As soon as you start opening a door here and a window there, does that start to chip away, not just at the actual confidentiality, but the perception of confidentiality of the process? I guess one of the points Jess makes is that there is an element of transparency around the process and the way the ICC works. And it seems to me that's probably a narrow path that they're going to have to try and tread, which is not to result in parties feel like they're losing one of the benefits that they perceive of arbitration, but at the same time create um, a, a sort of consistency and comfort that there is a, 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 a well-organised well and efficient process that is itself open to a degree of scrutiny. So, OK, well, I hear the point, Bart. Uh, people are going to have to make up their own mind. Um, Jess, I'm going to give you the opportunity to have a right to reply to Bart as a final comment. Thanks, Guy. I
1: think, so. I think- One, hearing you mention process, I mean, I think there's probably one other thought that comes to mind in relation to transparency. I think the other angle is transparency of the procedure in terms of the appointment of arbitrators. I think transparency is so important and is such a useful tool from a diversity perspective. We've obviously made lots of good progress in the last few years, but there's a long way to go in terms of diversity of gender, ethnicity, nationality, and other forms of diversity as well. So I wonder whether parties and their lawyers perhaps need to start seeing names on awards, and realising the frequency with which certain arbitrators are being appointed for certain cases, and realising that they, as the users of arbitration, have a role to play in changing the status quo. I know that when I was at the LCIA, I had the opportunity to learn the number of times that certain arbitrators were being nominated by parties, and it's really quite shocking. And obviously, the LCIA court does what it can, but its hands are pretty tied if the arbitration agreement provides for party nomination and so I think I suppose my closing thought um, and you can tell I think this could be a podcast (laughs) all all on its own but total transparency I think would not only allow parties to adhere to their own diversity agendas in their organizations but it would also really allow that business case for diversity to come out so that some of the less well-known less busy and the more junior arbitrators who are in my experience quite excellent (laughs) if everyone could see the awards that they produce, we could perhaps move towards having that wider pool of arbitrators so much more quickly. And I'll, I'll leave it there.
2: Yes, that's great. Thank you very much. Look, the, the point was well made. Thank you both for the comments today. Really appreciated. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, that's the end of this podcast, but our next one, and do tune in for that, where will be a discussion of the changes to the LCIA rules. Thank you very much.